here today to talk about walking, how to walk lovingly. We're in a series in 1 John on getting the most out of our walk. And I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience, but you know, maybe with your kid you feel so uh, strongly about something, so passionate about something that you almost don't have enough words to, to say what you want to say. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Psychologists actually say that, um, that, that if you, when you have a time of heightened passion, when you feel really strong about something, whether it be passion or anger, your IQ actually drops a little bit. And that's why when your parents got so mad at you that they would go, like that, and they couldn't get the words out because their IQ was dropped in that moment. And uh, they, they don't know what to say and how to say it. And I just got to tell you, I feel a little bit that way about today's message. Not anger, but just passion. Because uh, I, I want to talk to you today about what I consider probably the absolute most critical thing facing the church today, <laughs> and that's will or will not you and I walk lovingly and truly get what Jesus-like love is and allow that to turn heads out there and nothing else. So why don't you all join me in prayer that my IQ doesn't drop during the next uh, few moments, but that God continues to keep me focused on his word and all of us focused on this word and that we might walk out uh, even a little bit changed. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, we, we were talking, Lord, here about knowledge and our thought level. And Lord, I realize that it's not about my knowledge, about my thought level. It's about what you revealed to us already. And yet, Lord, all over the Bible, and especially all over the New Testament, is this idea that you have come to us in love, that you called us to love, and that we're to love in a different way than our world presents us. And so, God, if nothing else, may we latch on to that today, and Lord, may you even show us how you've resourced us to be the kind of men and women that can truly love in a Jesus kind of way. And may we realize the power and the profundity that is found in that. So we ask you to speak to us in your word right now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, well, I want you to think of all the songs about love that you and I have grown up with, because there are a lot of them. Uh, titles like this, All You Need Is Love, Love the One You're With, I'm All Out of Love, A Groovy Kind of Love, Love Me Tender, You Can't Hurry Love, Sea of Love, The Best of My Love, when a man loves a woman, have I told you lately that I love you? How deep is your love? I just called to say I love you. I mean, that's just off of the top of my head, sitting in my office this week, thinking of all the songs that I grew up with in the 70s, 80s, 90s uh, when it came to love. You and I live in a culture in which we receive messages about love just from the songs on the radio uh, every single day. In addition, in our culture today, we got volumes of books about love at our disposal. Have you ever noticed that? In fact, if you go to Amazon.com and type in the search engine love just under the book section, as I did this week, it will bring up approximately a quarter of a million books currently on love that you can have shipped to your doorstep overnight. That's a lot of books on love. In fact, you couldn't read a quarter million of books in your entire lifetime. So then I went to Google, and I decided, well, how many web pages are there on love? So I typed in love in the Google search engine. In .39 seconds, it tells you how long it took, it brought up 1,400,000,000 web pages all talking about love. That's a lot of love on Google. In addition to all of this, we have conferences and seminars on love, bumper stickers about love, billboards about love, magazines on how to love, talk shows dialoguing about how to love. We even have entire holidays in our culture today that are devoted to love, right? 
like the one in February that most men are terrified that they will forget. So no matter how you slice it, folks, one thing is really clear, and that is that you and I have definitely grown up in a world and culture that is enamored with, even fixated, upon love. I mean, it's all over the place in our fast-paced, want-it-now society. And yet, and you knew there was a yet coming, one's got to wonder this, and that is that with all of our culture's emphasis on love, why is it that the vast majority of us contend that we see it so very rarely? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we are a nation that is so focused on love. And so why is it that you can have a, a nation that sings about love, talks about love, writes about love, Twitter's about love, blogs about love, conferences about love, even billboards about love, and yet has the majority of its members in the nation saying that they feel there's a deficit of love? How could that be? I mean, that's not the American way. I got to tell you, Americans are known for being the kind of people that when we want something, we go after it and we get it, right? That's just the history of our country. We get laser beam focus on something and we're good at solving problems and we usually get there. And yet when it comes to this thing called love, and even for us as Christians, we're not really known for it, at least on a personal interactive level. The vast majority of people you talk to will say that we could sure use a lot more of it, that we could sure use to see it more often in our daily interactions. And so what gives? And I think the answer is simple, folks. And that is because our culture, and maybe even some of us here today, are confused when it comes to what love really is and what it takes to love another person. I think that's, going, that's what's going on. That when it comes to our definition of love, as well as how it's to work out in our lives, I think the vast majority of folks who have grown up in our love-obsessed culture really don't understand what true love is and how it's to be lived out in our lives today. And so kind of like a ship that's going through the ocean, but it's listing because it's taken on way too much bad water and can't really get into smooth sailing, that's the way our culture is when it comes to love. And it's time today for you and I, at least you and I, to take the bilge pump out and get some of that bad cultural water out of it so that we can start sailing again when it comes to this thing called love. And so I want to present two ideas to you here today. Two things as we continue in our study of 1 John and we get to the next section of Scripture here that John presents to us about how we can love in a Jesus-like way. And let's start very simple and yet profound. And here's the first thing John teaches us, and that is that following Jesus does present to you and I an entirely new pattern when it comes to love. we got to latch on to this this morning. That following Jesus presents an entirely new pattern when it comes to love. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to open up to the book of 1 John. It's found toward the end of the New Testament, not the Gospel of John. It's his first letter called 1 John. If you didn't bring a Bible, there might be one in the pew rack in front of you. We're also going to put the scripture up here on the screen. 1 John chapter 2, and let's look right now at verses 7 through 11. 1 John 2, verses 7 through 11. Listen to what he says. He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So, very simply put, you got John giving us two word pictures here, right? A word picture of new versus old and a word picture of light versus darkness. And the question I got to ask us, that we got to wrestle with right now, folks, is what does John mean when he says that this commandment to love is not new but old, but at the same time kind of new? What does he mean by that? It almost seems like an oxymoron. He's saying, I'm not giving you a new commandment, but an old commandment, but hey, it's, it's kind of new as well. What does he mean by that? Uh, some Bible experts believe that this is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so in the Old Testament, you got a command to love. Leviticus 19.18 tells us to love our neighbor. And that Jesus then renewed this commandment in the New Testament by calling us to love as well, like he did at the Last Supper, where he said, a new commandment I give to you to love one another just as I have loved you. And so old versus new simply means the Old Testament command that now is repeated or renewed in the New Testament by Jesus. And though certainly this could be what John is saying here, I'm not sure that that interpretation really does justice to the totality of John's statements here. Because it doesn't really answer what John means by the command that you had from the beginning, like the beginning of what, as well as the statement where he says that this is now true in him and in you. Now, I like how I. Howard Marshall and John Calvin interpret this new versus old distinction when they suggest that what John means by an old commandment that you had from the beginning refers to the beginning of your salvation or to when Jesus first gave the command to love. In other words, when you first heard the message to now love as Jesus loved, that's what he means by old. It happened when you first got saved or when Jesus first gave it. But it's now also a new command, and it is true in him and in you, John says, in the sense that as you and I follow Christ in the present, in the here and now, we now follow his pattern for what it means to love in a sacrificial, selfless, other-centered fashion that is now empowered by his Holy Spirit. As I. Howard Marshall says, he says, and I quote, this love is now continually being realized and actualized in the life of Jesus and his followers. And so old refers to the original command that Jesus gave when he was on this earth to love in a pattern set by him, but it's new in the sense that it is renewed and made true, born out as you and I go outside the walls of, these church, of this church and truly love in the way that Jesus taught us to love. And that's why John says we're now living as, living as people in the light, the light of his new pattern to love, not in the darkness, the darkness of this world that's passing away. And so once you get this, that what John is really after here is the kind of love that's being born anew each moment of each day in our experience with other people as we follow and pattern ourselves after Christ, the question becomes, well, what is the pattern that Christ set for us, right? I mean, if Jesus is our barometer for what it means to love and for what love looks like, what is the pattern that Jesus set? And all you have to do, folks, is look at the life of Jesus to figure that one out. I mean, think of what you know about Christ. He forgave us of our sins, even when we didn't deserve it. Core to his love ethic is forgiveness. 
Further, he accepted people right where they were, accepting people. I mean, uh, the woman caught in adultery, uh, the woman at the well, Zacchaeus up a tree, Peter when he was denying him. He accepted people where they were and yet at the same time loved them enough to speak truth to them to try to get them where God wanted them to be. Further, he thought more of others than he did himself. Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself, becoming a man and a servant of other people. And then we know he sacrificed his time, talents, and treasures, even his life, to invest in the lives of others, especially those who were very far from God and needed to be brought back to him. In other words, don't miss this, folks. Jesus' pattern of love was and is sacrificial, other-centered, forgiving, selfless, truthful, and grace-oriented. And the point is, is that as you and I now learn to love like Jesus loves, as John says, it can be true in him and in you, look out. Because when we love like that, spiritual and relational sparks fly and truly heads turn, and we can even see the trajectory of people's lives begin to change. Somebody once said that only God can change the composition of a human heart. And I believe that. That's what we saw in our my story with Vera there. But the reality is, is that he wants to use you and I. And the primary way that he uses you and I is when we show Christ-like love to those around us. Uh, last summer, almost a year ago, I had an experience with this just where I saw it in, in clear color here in our church with a couple that was really wrestling with something in their lives. Uh, Tim and Jody came up to me after service. And by the way, I've asked them if I could share the story. And they said, sure. Came up to me after service sometime around last summer, last fall. And were really wrestling in the recession with how to respond to a, another couple that had hurt them. They'd been in a business partnership with this couple or something like that. And, and through uh, an array of circumstances, the business deal didn't work out. And this couple ended up owing them around seventy-five dollars to $100,000. And so when they tried to recoup their funds from this couple, they got the, sort of their, their noses thumbed at, and, 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 the, and they basically said these people are thumbing their noses at us and we're really not willing to play ball, and they wanted to know how they should respond to them. And obviously I asked, well, is, is this other couple of believers? And they said, no, nah, not really, they're really not. They were from a, a very unorthodox tradition and, uh, and, and one that would not be considered orthodox Christianity. And they said, you know, so we just don't know where to go in this. And I said, well, obviously, if you wanted to, you could bring justice against them through the court system. That would not be a wrong thing to do. I said, at the same time, you might want to pray about what God would have you do, because that's certainly what Christians do. And so they went, and, and the initial thing they did is that they did seek some legal recourse against this couple, and they got a judgment against them in federal court. And uh, as a result of that judgment against them, this couple was going to have to declare bankruptcy in order to survive financially. And at that point... Tim and Jody decided they really were going to submit this to prayer because they didn't know if that's what God wanted them to do or not. And while Tim was away on a business trip, he called Jody one night and he said, I, I really sense and feel that the Lord is calling us to release this couple and drop the lawsuit against them and uh, to forgive them of this debt. And as Jody prayed about it, she sensed that that's what the Lord was saying as well. As she wrote to me, she said, I never felt so good about losing so much money. At that point, she decided to write them a letter releasing them of their debt. And I want to read you a portion of it because it's one of the most powerful things I've seen when it comes to truly a heart-releasing kind of love. She says, Dear so-and-so, it is with humble hearts that Tim and I write to release you from your liability to us. This decision is the result of praying and seeking God's will together individually with our pastor. 
And our prayer during this almost two-year ordeal has been for the Lord to give us wisdom and direction. We have asked that all bitterness and anger and pride be removed so our judgment wouldn't be clouded with our own emotions. Our prayers have been answered and God has spoken to us very clearly. As Christians, we celebrate the grace Christ has extended to us. It is unimaginable that he would die for our sins and continue to love us unconditionally. We fail him constantly and he chooses to forgive us and love us anyway. Because of our gratitude for his mercy and forgiveness and grace, we are compelled, blessed, and humbled to offer the same to you. I must admit, when our attorney told us that you were going to file bankruptcy, there was a sense of relief that this is over, that we didn't have to spend any more energy on it, and that we now have a conclusion. But after being prompted by the Lord, we can't see any good coming from you filing bankruptcy. We don't want your family to suffer any further devastation. We have realized that we can have the same relief and finality simply by releasing you of any obligation or debt you have with us. She says, Tim and I have learned countless lessons over the past couple of years as we have gone through some pretty tough trials. I've already shared the biggest one, but I would love to share a few others in hopes that something may bless and encourage and speak to you. And then she goes on to share things like joy and their identity in Christ and all that. She closes by saying, may God pour his blessings upon you, your marriage, and your children. He has you and your future in the palm of his hand. May you feel hope in that promise with love and peace, Tim and Jody. I got to tell you, folks, I read a letter like this, and I said what somebody else here just said, and that was, wow. And in one sense, I thought, you know, this is the normative Christian experience. This is what Christians are supposed to do and to love, but as we've already established, we don't see it that often. And when you do see something like this, you just go, whoa. And what you need to know is that this couple had the exact same response, the couple that they released. They sent a very short message back to Jody, the husband did, and he said, Jody, I'm speechless. It brought me to tears when I read what you sent. I don't know what to say other than thank you. You and Tim are great people, and I feel bad that I potentially added to the stress of your life. I want nothing more than what's best for you, and I wish I could have relieved some of that stress. I apologize for the short response, but like I said earlier, I'm somewhat speechless. Again, thank you, and may God bless you and your wonderful family. He didn't know what to say. He was blown away by this kind of love. And though we're going to talk about it here in just a minute, please know this is a God kind of love that only God can do in the hearts of an individuals, or hearts of individuals. Well, when I asked uh, Jody and Tim this week if I could share their story with you, she responded and said, Hi, Pastor Jamie, of course you can. I just want to make clear, however, that it was not us at all. Only the Lord could change our hearts. We aren't that good. She says, we are so grateful that he put the forgiveness on our hearts so strongly that we couldn't refuse. We've been blessed probably 1,000 times more than the people we forgave. We're the ones who were freed. Blessings, Jody. And that's the way it works, folks. But when we learn to love, when we learn to let go, when we learn to live the Jesus life in our experience today, it truly does free us. And that's not the motivation that we do it for, mind you. We do it because God wants us to do it and because this is how we truly love others. But that's one of the side benefits. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. You think like me. You're thinking, well, come on, Jamie. I mean, how often do things like this happen? I mean, get your head out of the sand. These are really difficult issues. Releasing somebody from a debt that you had every right to demand. I mean, this is not normative behavior, even from those who claim to follow Christ. And folks, if you think like that at all, you're probably right. This kind of outrageous, debt-releasing love is not seen all that often, 
And as we've already established, it certainly isn't the kind that you read about in books and sing songs about and conferences and seminars and magazines that our culture is all into. But what I need you to see before we go any further this morning is that it is Jesus' way. That's inarguable. The kind of debt-releasing love that Jesus came to bring for you and I when it comes to God the Father is the same kind of debt-releasing love he asks us to pass on to those in our world now. As Peter would say, we now become manifestations of God's amazing grace to those around us. And we don't do that by fighting people. We don't do that by demanding our rights. We don't do that by all the things that Christians are somehow known for today. We do it by love. And it doesn't mean that there won't be times that you want justice and even seek it. It doesn't mean that there won't be times that love can be tough. But the reality is that if it doesn't stem from a heart of love, the Bible says that's not Jesus. Because everything Jesus did toward us came out of a heart of love, and we now are called to be men and women of love as well. And so the only question becomes at this point, is, well, how in the world do you love like that? I mean, how do you learn to love in such a way that can truly release people and free up your heart and theirs? And I'm glad you asked, because John goes on right now to share with us that you and I, now don't miss this, have been resourced in our Christian life to be able to learn to love like Jesus loved. And so I want to read about it right now. Look at how John wraps up this section in verses 12 through 17 of John chapter 2, and then I'll give you our second point, and this will be a great challenge, but you're going to be encouraged by this. Look at what he says in verses 12 to 17. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so for time's sake here this morning, folks, notice just one incredible overriding truth that I think John is making clear here that becomes the linchpin for you and I when it comes to learning to love like Christ loves. And it's simply this, that we learn Christ-like love by attaching ourselves to the realities of God while at the same time detaching ourselves from certain things of this world. That's what it's all about. It's more easier said than done. But you've got to understand God's plan. And that is that you and I learn to love in this outrageous, crazy fashion by learning to attach ourselves to certain realities that God has presented before us and then detaching from certain things of this world. And so notice first that John tells us that we need to attach ourselves to certain realities that are true for us as followers of Jesus. And to see those realities, you've got to look again at verses 12 through 14. These verses are actually debated by commentators, Bible experts. They kind of bicker back and forth as to exactly what John is trying to do here. Because you're going to notice that he addresses three different groups two different times, twice repeated. He addresses little children, and then he addresses young men, and then he addresses fathers. And in addressing them, he tells them what is true about them and their position or status in Christ. 
In other words, he does nothing but encourage them that there are some true things about them right now in the present that resource them to be able to attach themselves to realities of God that do nothing but help them learn to love. And the way the Bible commentators or experts bicker is that some of them think that these are literal groups, literal groups. That, that, that John is referring to little children, fathers, young men, that he's kind of speaking to different age demographics here. While others see these groups as symbolic of stages of Christian maturity as you and I grow in Christ. So you start by being a little child in the faith who's realized that you're forgiven and that you come into salvation. And then as you grow, you realize as a young person that you now have victory over sin and that you're strong. And then eventually you grow into maturity where you really know God the Father and his will for your life. And then still others argue that these are just differing qualities of the Christian life that we all share at all times, like we all need to be forgiven and to know that God Father personally and have victory over sin. And though there are strong arguments, folks, for each interpretive solution here, whether literal or symbolic or qualitative, I tend to favor the symbolic one. And I'll tell you why. I tend to favor it because as I established here in week one, John is a poet. And John is going to communicate to you and I in poetic word pictures quite often, light, darkness, new, old, and here I think stages of Christian maturity. And so it would not be at all unusual for John to use poetic license here and share that some of us are at the little children stage of our Christian walk. But that's okay. We're at a stage where we're realizing that we are forgiven of our sins, washed clean, and that we've now been brought into a life-giving relationship with God the Father. And guess what? That resources you to be able to begin to love like Jesus loved. But then some of us are now at the adolescent stage where we are growing daily in our faith and we're growing daily in our victory over sin and we're getting strong, as John says. And guess what? We now can love even more and learn to be selfless and other-centered and releasing in our love of others. And then we can even become adults in our faith, where we begin to know God in deep and intimate ways, even to the point of becoming like Him in our faith and actions. So I think what John is saying here, folks, is reminding us of our status and position in Christ each step of each way, as we, each way of each step as we follow Him and become more like Him. And so don't miss, in a very real way, he is challenging us to attach our souls to the realities of our Christian experience. Realities of Christ that you and I can and should experience each step of the way. Realities like that we've been forgiven, that we have victory over sin, and that we can know God the Father in deep and intimate ways. And what John is saying is that as you and I grow in these things, as we become more and more the men and women that God wants us to be, as a result, look out. You're going to begin to love like God wants you to love. It becomes a byproduct of knowing and experiencing Him. You know, I had a, a profound experience with this just about eight years ago, so not too long ago, in my own Christian maturity. The year was 2002, and I had just gotten back to Cleveland, Ohio, where I was assuming the senior pastor of my home sending church years before, Fellowship Bible Church in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. And as I started there in January of 2002, I decided that that spring I was going to do a, a sermon series on the story of the prodigal son out of Luke 15. So I'm scouring all the commentaries and just nailing down all the ins and outs of the prodigal son, you know, with the wayward son and the older brother who cops an attitude and the you know, forgiveness of the Father and all that other stuff. And 
At one point, I decided to read a book about the prodigal son by Henry Nouwen called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It was about Nouwen's experience actually with Rembrandt's famous painting that you see behind me on the screen there, uh, The Story of the Prodigal Son. It's actually a very profound painting, if you see it there, of the father embracing the returning son there who's got all the tattered clothes and he's missing one's shoes and the father just embraces him as he nuzzles his head into the father's chest there. And then you got the older brother on the far right there that's kind of looking as he's staring into space. And you know what he's thinking? He's thinking, I never got grace like this. He's thinking, why is this younger son who's like, you know, whittled away all the inheritance or half the inheritance getting all this grace? What's going on here? And Rembrandt painted this beautiful painting, and, and Nouwen's talking about this painting all throughout the book. And at one point at the end of the book, Nouwen said something that God really used to zing me in my Christian experience, and that was simply this. He said that the majority of people who latch on to the story of the prodigal son almost always latch on to either the experience of the younger son or the experience of the older son. Give me a head nod that you all get that. In other words, we either latch on to the fact that we're like that rebellious, bratty, spoiled, younger son who goes off and whittles away our lives and then comes back to God, a pitiful wreck, and that we experience His grace and forgiveness, and now we're home. Or we're like the older son who never left the farm. We've always stayed in church. We've always been pretty good. And when we see other people get grace, we're like, that's not fair, God. It shouldn't be that way. And he said most people spend their entire lives focusing or even ping-ponging back and forth between the older son and the younger son. And then Nouwen said this. He said maybe some of us should start to grow up and start relating to the father. Maybe some of us should start to grow up and realize that as you grow into Christian maturity, you don't become like the son and you don't relate to the older son. You start to relate to the father who was a dispenser of grace, who was a forgiver of sin, who was the kind of man who could receive back wayward prodigals, but then also speak truth to sons who have copped an ungraceful attitude. And as he shared that with me in that book, I was 38 years old at the time, I thought to myself, Rasmussen, it's time to grow up. I spent most of my adult Christian life either relating to the younger son or relating to the older son. It was one of the first times where I thought I need to become the father. I need to become the father to my church. I need to become the father to my good friends. I need to become the father, take this in the right light, to my wife. I need to become the father, truly in a spiritual sense, to my children. In other words, start being a man, Jamie, who learns to love like Jesus loved in this grace-releasing, audacious fashion that the father showed in that story. You see, that's what John is telling you and I here. That this can be true in him and in you, but you need to attach yourselves to the realities of God. C.S. Lewis once said that the goal of the Christian life is to become a little Christ. He didn't mean that in any redemptive sense or in any deity sense. He just simply means that if we're actually going to become more like Jesus, then the goal is to have a bunch of little Christs walking around. And he's right. That the goal for you and I is to learn to become more like Christ. And you're not going to do it unless you attach yourselves to his forgiveness and to his Holy Spirit power that frees you from sin and then the knowledge that you can have that leads you into intimacy with him. And yet notice that it doesn't stop there. Very interesting. Notice that John further challenges us that as we are attaching ourselves to the realities of God that we are simultaneously to detach our lives from things that hold us back from love. 
He says in verses 15 to 17 that if we're going to truly love as Jesus loved, then we need to stop loving certain things that get in the way of our love for God and others. And under the banner of not loving the world, which is like a catchphrase, but in this context it simply means the system or structure of the world, he then specifically mentions three things. You don't want to miss this, that we can stop loving. And that is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions. And though there's probably three or four sermons just in those three phrases there, here's what I think John is getting at here. And that is that anything that competes for our love for God, anything that keeps us from loving God fully and completely, whether it is overtly sinful or, sinful or just too much of the world, he says, detach your souls from because it's keeping you from loving God. And though obviously this includes sinful things like sexual lust that destroys marriages and relationships, or a lifestyle of materialism that numbs our soul because it focuses much, much, much more on physical things rather than spiritual things. Or obviously, it means traits like pride, anger, hatred, envy, greed. I mean, these things just sabotage relationships. I believe also, however, that John is referring here in these three phrases to seemingly innocent and benign things, actually things that might not be all that bad in a certain context, but don't miss this, but when they become too big for our lives, when we incorporate things of the world too much in our lives, they actually slow us down. Again, too much water in, in the bottom of the ship there and actually cause us to not be able to love, and we need to detach ourselves from them. What are we talking about? Uh, Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan calls these things idols of the heart. Give me another click here, guys. And he suggests in his writings that there are things that see are seemingly innocent in our world that have become idols in American culture that really hold us back from knowing God and loving others. Things like comfort. The fact that you and I live in a comfort-obsessed culture that demands a lack of stress and ease in life above all else. It's become an idol for some of us. Or how about approval? Keller writes about the tendency that we all have to seek approval and affirmation at any cost. Even the cost of being disingenuine with those around us or manipulative of those around us. We're going to manipulate affirmation and approval from them. Or how about control? A seemingly fine activity in and of itself, but taking on idle status when you and I demand certainty and sureness from God in a world that we know isn't going to give it. Or Keller even writes about power, something that our world system unashamedly seeks after and utilizes to egregious extremes, the attaining of success and influence and winning at all costs, even the cost of our own integrity and character. Comfort, approval, control, power, all potential idols of the heart. And so Israel was criticized by God for bowing down to Baals and having, you know, wooden poles that they would worship. We haven't done that today, but we got our own symbolic poles of things that have taken much more of a higher status in our life than God himself. Comfort, approval, control, and power. And until you detach yourself from these things, you're not going to have the love of Jesus experientially flowing in and through you. You know, as I thought about you guys this week when it came to that, I thought, you know, here's the bummer when it comes to these idols of the heart, and that is that, you know, I myself live in a relatively cloistered world. I, most pastors won't admit it, but it's just true of us. 
we're around Bible studies and lay people, and, you know, everywhere we go, we're reminded that we're Christians, and, and though we live in the world, we're, we're in somewhat cloistered environments, and that's not all bad. I mean, my gosh, we're pastors. And yet, even in that world of mine, I got to tell you, I struggle daily with the idols of comfort, approval, control, and power every day in my world. And as I thought about it, I thought, now, if that's true for me, you folks got to be dead men and women out there. I mean, think about it. If I struggle with it, and I'm not even on the front lines as much as you guys are, then this is going to be something we all struggle with. Can you own that today? You see, that's what God is asking us to detach from. Many of us think we just have to detach from the really ugly sins. That's true, you do. But it doesn't stop there. That Larry Crabb calls that good enough Christianity. The fact that if I just avoid six or seven big sins, I guess I'm good enough. No, no that's not what it's about. You see, that is what you need to do. But then you need to dig deeper and begin to detach yourself from things of the heart that are holding you back from love. It's an attachment, detachment model that Jesus gives us here. And what is the end result of this? You're going to love it. Look at verse 17, how John wraps this up. He says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Woe. So in short, learning to walk lovingly places you and I smack dab into the center of, as John says, the will of God. It allows us to do and accomplish his will for our lives. And what is his will? To be faithful and to be loving. One last illustration and with this will be done. How many of you, when you were little guys and gals, ever went to a circus? Let's see a hand raise. How many of you went to a circus? Wow, some of you didn't have really nice parents. Anyways, I'm assuming that most of us have gone to the circus when we were little guys and gals. And I don't know if you remember the circus, but one of the most cool things about the circus was the trapeze act, right? I mean, as a little guy not growing up with Nintendo or Xbox 360 or anything like that, when I went to the circus and that trapeze thing happened, my heart was beating a thousand miles an hour. Remember those days? And really what got your heart beating was when they were all swinging up there, and at one point when they were kind of coming toward each other, one of them would let go of their trapeze, and as you see in the picture, they're flying through the air. And some circuses didn't even have nets, remember that? Flying through the air, and the other one would then reach out and catch the person, and we'd all start to clap. I think it's a great picture for what John, and by extension God, is asking you and I today when it comes to detach and attach. You see, some of us have been swinging on the bar of this world way too long, haven't we? I mean, we're just swinging on the bar of this world, just kind of going our way, and as Vera said earlier, going to church and doing our thing, and yet we've never really let go of the things that hold us back from love. We've never been that trapeze artist that's willing to detach from the bar and attach ourselves, take that risk that God's really going to catch us and attach ourselves to him and his realities. That's what John is asking you and I to do. That's what separates the men from the boys, the women from the gals, when it comes to this thing called love. That's what allow you to not just love like the songs you hear on the radio, but to love like Jesus called us to love in a way that really can release others and do so in a way that gives life to your own soul. It's not an easy thing to do. It's a process. I had a gal come up to me after his last service just in tears. He didn't even tell me what the situation was, but just in tears, agonizing over not being able to let go. And maybe some of you are there right now. I get that. In fact, Tim and Jody emailed me this week and told me it was a two-year process for them to be able to let go uh, of the debt owed to them. 
But the reality is, is that as you stay in the ring, as you detach from the things that hold you back, as you attach to the realities of God, he just might do something in your heart that will allow you to love. And you will look back, and like many of us have said, you will say, only God. Let's pray. Father, and I thank you that your word, though pulling no punches, comes along and defines for us what love is about and even lifts it to the, well, along with faith and hope, to the highest ethics that a Christian can have. So, Father, I pray that as we focus just a little bit today on what it might mean to walk lovingly, that at the very least, Lord, you would nudge some of us off-center in our lives. And, Lord, remind us that we truly might need to go from being a little child to a young man or woman to a father or a mother in our faith. And, Father, I pray that as some of us are really stuck in our ability to love right now, as can be very common in today's world, that, Lord, as we stay in the ring with you, as we learn to detach from the things that hold us back and attach our lives to the realities that you provide, realities like forgiveness and victory and true knowledge of you, that, God, you might pull a fast one in our hearts, that you truly might soften our hearts, that we might love in such a way that makes a difference. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, for the salvation that he's provided for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. The ushers are going to come forward right now to serve our elements for our communion Sunday. As you guys know, this is my favorite part of the service every month when we celebrate communion. Why? Because these elements do nothing but remind us of the core and heart of our faith, namely Jesus himself. And so when Jesus came, he had a very last supper with his disciples before he went to the cross. We call it the last supper. It was a Passover meal. And he took the unleavened bread that they were eating, and he took the wine, this is juice, that they were drinking, and uh, he said, this is my body, and this is my blood. It's going to be given for you for the remission, the forgiveness of your sins. And little did they know the life change that that would bring. Little did we know the life change that that would bring. And so we celebrate, at least monthly here, what we call communion of the Lord's Supper. So if you're a follower of Christ here today, please take these elements and hold them. And we're all going to partake together in just a few minutes. But use this time to worship him and to focus on the core of your faith. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that your forgiveness comes to us in Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Jesus was on this earth, he made a statement that's become very popular. He said, greater love has no one than he laid down his life for his friends. And then Jesus said to his disciples, and I call you friends. So add that up. You got the eternal Son of God coming into this world, making friends with people like us, and then going to the cross to die the death that we should have died so that we might be brought to God. You'll find no greater love, search long and hard, than a love like that, than the kind of love that would sacrifice one's own life so that you might have peace with God. That's what these elements symbolize, his body, his blood, that have given us peace and forgiveness with God Almighty. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread that they were eating. He said, this bread is my body, broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup that they were drinking. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins. And whenever you drink it, remember me. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who empowers us to follow him. So God, as we go now in the name of your Son, Christ, we pray that your Spirit and the intimacy of your Son and Father, yourself, would go with us Remind us that you will never leave us or forsake us. And Lord, may you help us to love as we've been called to love. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.